Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. In this lecture, we will be exploring a fundamental conflict that people of faith deal with in their practical relationship with God. I am not speaking of religious people in particular, but of people of faith in a higher power who rules heaven and earth together with all that happens to them in their day-to-day -day lives. The paradox is that of effort versus faith. This question expresses itself sometimes in our confusion concerning our prayers and God's answers. How often have I been asked by people if there is a time to accept that God is answering their prayer with a no? The question is whether we are to continue with our effort of praying and to continue in our effort of working towards our goals, or whether we should consider that God has answered us no and that we should accept God's answer. This question is such a deep one and lay at the core of our faith in God and in God's relationship with us. I have explored this question in a series of lectures on prayer titled, Talking, Listening, and a Two-Way Conversation. In this lecture, we will be exploring a different angle of the question of Hishtadlut, which means effort, versus Emunah, which means faith. To understand the specific approach of this lecture, we are going to need to shift from our paradigm to God's paradigm, and from this new paradigm to understand the contrast between preciousness and perfection. From the human paradigm, we have an intrinsic inner yearning of, and I'll quote to you a verse from Job, you desire the work of your hands. However, together with it, the feeling of futility of, and I'll quote to you a verse that King Solomon says, if the Lord would not build a house, its builders have toiled at it in vain. If the Lord will not guard a city, its watcher keeps his vigil in vain. Now let us look from God's paradigm. On the one hand, there is the preciousness of having an egocentric human gifted with freedom of choice to freely humble himself before God and to perform God's will. That's precious. On the other hand, there is the besmirched opaque fingerprints of the imperfect limited capacity of the egocentric human being. Thus, this lecture is going to explore how far the necessity of our precious effort goes and when it is time to get out of God's way with perfect faith. There are a few introductions that are necessary for us to understand before we dive into this core spiritual exploration. Let us begin with the reading of the second Sefer Torah that we will be taking out of the Aron HaKodesh Holy Ark this Shabbat. The reading is called Parshat HaKodesh and it is about the first commandment that the Jewish people received from God through Moses. This is what the verses say. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, This month shall be to you the head of the months. To you it shall be the first of the months of the year. There are actually two commandments in this verse. A, the commandment of setting Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the Jewish calendar month, upon the appearance of the new moon. And B, 
that this month, the month in which the Jewish people left Egypt, the month of Nisan, is to be the first month of the Jewish calendar. This creates a seemingly absurd phenomenon for the Jewish calendar. Rosh Hashanah, which is the New Year's of the Jewish calendar, is defined now as the first day of the seventh month. You see, Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the month of Tishrei, which is six months after the month of Nisan. So, if Nisan is the first month of the Jewish calendar, that means that Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the seventh month. Would it not stand to reason that Rosh Hashanah be the first day of the new year, should be the first day of the first month of the calendar? Thus, our sages teach us, and I'm going to quote the teaching from the Midrash. This month shall be to you. This is what the verse states. Praiseworthy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people that He chose as His inheritance. When the Holy One, blessed be He, chose His world, He established for it new months and years, Rosh Chodesh and Rosh Hashanah. And when He chose Jacob and his sons, He established in it the new month, Rosh Chodesh of redemption. And in it they will be redeemed in the future. As the verse states, As in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt, I will show him wonders. Thus we have two cycles that exist for the Jewish people within the realm of time. One is the cycle of nature, and the other the cycle of redemption, miracles. In order to fully appreciate these two cycles, let me take you to the Ten Commandments. In the first of the Ten Commandments, God tells us that He is our God. And how does God establish Himself as our God in this commandment? Let me quote it to you. I am God your God who took you out of Egypt. Stop and think for a moment about this. When God is establishing Himself as our God, our ultimate higher power, should God have not said, who created heaven and earth? Is not God being the creator of everything what makes Him God? Thus, once again, we are finding two different cycles in our existence. A. God is our God who created heaven and earth, as God commands us in the fourth of the Ten Commandments concerning observing Shabbat. The verse says, For in six days God made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. And then goes on to say, Therefore God sanctified the seventh day and Shabbat. So there it mentions that He created heaven and earth and the seas, and all that is in them. Then we have B, I am God your God, who took you out of Egypt. The cycle of Tishrei and Rosh Hashanah is the cycle of God's creating the heavens and the earth, and establishing within them the laws of nature. The cycle of Nisan is the cycle of redemption and miracles, which God established only once God chose Jacob and his sons. Here is another important detail of these two cycles, that of creation, nature, and that of redemption, miracles. The cycle of nature is defined in the beginning of Genesis with the ten utterances of, and God said, let there be. And it keeps on listing in the verses, what is the let there be? Let there be light, let there be... This cycle begins with the word bereshit in the beginning, which begins with the letter bet, bereshis. The second letter of the alphabet, the cycle of redemption and miracles, begin with the Ten Commandments, 
which begins with the word Anochi, I am, which stands, which starts with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Aleph Beit. At the very onset of God's appointing Moses at the burning bush on Mount Sinai to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, God said, and I quote to you, in order that they serve me at this mountain, meaning that the redemption of Egypt is all about our receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. This also gives us insight into why of all the miracles that God performed for us, it is only concerning our redemption of Egypt that we are commanded in every generation a man is bound to regard himself as though he personally had gone forth from Egypt. As a matter of fact, our sages instituted that we must remember the exodus from Egypt twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, by their establishing their, a third portion to our Shema prayers. You know the prayer that's Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one? Well, the sages established a third portion of that prayer to remember the exodus of Egypt. Thus, just as we say to Shema, in the morning and in the evening, now together with this, we remember twice a day the redemption of Egypt. This specific emphasis of our continuous twice daily remembering that God took us out of Egypt becomes somewhat clear in God's proclaiming Himself as our God because of His being the God who took you out of Egypt. Thus, God's creating heaven and earth begins with a bet, being secondary to God's taking us out of Egypt, which begins with the Aleph. What we are here to explore is how these two cycles of nature and of miracles reflect themselves in our service to God. What we can see here is that the cycle of nature, which begins with the month of Tishrei and the High Holidays, is the service of effort, while the cycle of redemption, which begins with the month of Nisan and the Passover is the service of faith. However, there is yet one more introduction which we must first understand. The mystical meaning behind the Aleph of the Ten Commandments and the Bet of Creation. Let us now take a deeper look into this. What is the mystical meaning behind the Aleph of the Ten Commandments and the Bet of the Ten Utterances? King Solomon says, and I quote to you the verse in Shir Hashirim, How beautiful and how pleasant you are, a love with delights. Mystically speaking, the emphasis here is the love with delights that a Jew has for God, which empowers the Jew to then serve the Lord your God with happiness and with gladness of heart, with abundance of everything. That's what we're commanded in the book of Deuteronomy to serve God with happiness and with gladness of heart, with abundance of everything. Mystically, the verse is telling us that we serve God with joy because within serving God, there is the abundance of everything. What is this abundance of everything? It is the how beautiful, how pleasant you are, a love with delights, which exists only in serving God and not in the mere creations which God created. This is the Aleph of the Ten Commandments, the abundance of everything which does not exist in the creation of heaven and earth, which only has the Bet. Mystically speaking, 
The spelling of the name of the letter bet is made up of the letters to the word buy it, which means house. Thus, the letter bet of creation is, let me quote to you a verse of Proverbs, a house is built with wisdom. Wisdom is the first and highest of the ten emanations, through which the infinite light, blessed be he, creates and vivifies creation. However, the name Aleph in Hebrew spells out the word Pela, which means wondrous, which transcends beyond wisdom and is of the delight. Let us better understand this. The verse states, Let them praise the name of God, for his name is sublimely transcendent. It is unto himself. Only its radiance is upon earth and heavens. This verse carries in it the secret to the world being only of the Bet and not of the Aleph. Let's see. The verse does not say praise God, but rather to praise the name of God. Then the verse goes on to say that even the name of God is too sublime for creation and that creation is from just a radiance of the name of God. A name is descriptive and thus, mystically speaking, the name of God is not the essence of God but of the light of God. Now, even the light of God is infinite and too sublime to bring forth a finite creation. Thus, another separation and concealment is placed and only a radiance of the name is brought forth from which the earth and heavens are created, including all the spiritual heavens of the Garden of Eden and the pleasures therein. This is not the abundance of everything. It's only a radiance of the name. Now let us look at the first word in the first letter of the Ten Commandments. The first word of the Ten Commandments is Anochi, which means I am. However, in Hebrew, the word for I am is Ani, and not Anochi. The word Anochi is not Hebrew. Our sages teach us that the reason for this is there's something hidden in the word Anochi. The four letters to the word Anochi serve as an acronym of four words. Ana, Nafshi, Ksavit, Yehavit, I, my soul, essence, in my writings I have placed. God has placed His essence his Aleph into the Torah. The same is concerning the observance of the commandments, over which we first make a blessing saying, Who has sanctified us with His commandments? Asher kidishanu bimitzvotav, in which God's essence sanctifies and envelopes us. Thus, unlike in creation, Torah and mitzvahs have the abundance of everything, the Aleph, letters of Pela, wondrous delight. Thus, with concentration upon the difference in what of God God has placed in creation and that God has placed Himself in the Torah, we awaken within ourselves to serve the Lord your God with happiness and with gladness of heart with, now read the word because of, abundance of everything. Thus, we now have an understanding of the difference between the Aleph and the Bet, and of God being the God who created heavens and earth, the Bet, and of God being the God who took you out of Egypt in order that they serve me at this mountain by receiving the Ten Commandments, the Aleph. Now we can return to our exploration of how far the preciousness of effort goes and when we need to move aside for the perfection of the light to happen. In the book of Kings, the verse states, 
And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. That's what the verse says. It says the month Ethanim. What does the word Ethanim mean? Rashi, Rab Shlomo Yishaki, quotes the translation of Yonatan ben Uziel and says, let me quote to you the Rashi, in the month which the ancient ones, that's what Eitanim means, ancient ones, in the month which the ancient ones called the first month on the festival. And at present it is the seventh month, i.e., since the Torah was given, and it is written in reference to the month of Nisan that it is the first of the month, so Tishrei will then be called the seventh month. Interesting. It refers to the month of Tishrei as which the ancient ones called the first month, but today is the seventh month. Let us understand. Why did God change the first month from its original Tishrei to now be Nisan? Well, the reason seems to be that it is because the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt in the month of Nisan. Well, why did God have the Jewish people wait an extra six months to be redeemed in the month of Nisan instead of them being redeemed in the month of Tishrei? As a matter of fact, our sages tell us that the beginning of the redemption from Egypt actually did happen in the month of Tishrei. The Talmud states, and I'm going to quote to you the Talmud, on Rosh Hashanah, the bondage of our ancestors ceased in Egypt. So the slavery stopped while the Jews were still in Egypt in the month of Tishrei. So why didn't God just take us out of Egypt in the month of Tishrei? However, now we can understand the reason why, and with it we understand the difference between the service of preciousness of Tishrei, the high holidays, and the service of faith of Nisan, Passover. What we have learned here is that there is the evolution, called in Kabbalah Hasidus, Sedeh Hishtal Shalut in which there is the finite orderly evolution from one link of the realms of the creation to the next link of creation. It begins with the highest spiritual realms and evolves lower and lower until the lowest realm of creation, which is the physical realm of earth. Even after God created all of creation and then chose His creation, which chose denotes a level of delight. And because of this delight, God established the concept of Rosh Chodesh and Rosh Hashanah, which were both in Tishrei. However, even the transcending Rosh was still part of the evolution of nature, and thus finite and limited by definition. The primary service of the High Holidays is the service of effort, also known in Kabbalah and Hasidus with the name Iserusa Dilatata which means that the arousal, that's what Iserusa means, arousal, the initial force of cause comes from below, dilettata, from below. This is what lies in the evolution. It is a system in which the highest point above is but a chain of links from the lowest point below. And thus what happens from above is aroused by us here below. However, in the evolution, we below cannot initiate an out-of-the-evolution experience. Yes, we can cause changes within the evolution, but we cannot transcend to the out-of-the-evolution. This is why Tishrei had the power to change the Jewish experience within Egypt, bringing the bondage of our ancestors to an end. However, Tishrei could not bring about a redemption, taking us out of Egypt.
To be more precise, the Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which is from the word Mitzar and Mitzarim, which means constraints, boundaries, and finite limitations. Thus, the exodus of Egypt really is about the exodus of the evolution, and that is not within the power of Tishrei, the Bet, and the finite ray of the name of God. However, once God chose Jacob and his sons and introduced a wondrous Aleph into God's relationship with the Jewish people, now there is the essence power of perfection, to have an exodus out of the evolution. Thus, in the final analysis, what we have learned here is that the power of Tishrei, which is the power of effort, is brought about by arousal from below, which is precious. Now, as precious as it is, it is limited to the human's capacity. The power of Nisan, which is the power of faith, is brought about simply by the kindness of God, from a place which is beyond the chain reaction reach of the human being. Thus, it brings to us the perfect, infinite experience of redemption. Now we can understand an argument in the Talmud between two sages, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua. Rabbi Eliezer states that the final redemption will be in Tishrei, while Rabbi Yeshua is of the opinion that Mashiach will come and redeem us in Nisan. This argument of in which month Mashiach will bring us the final redemption is part and parcel of a different argument between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua concerning the final redemption. One argument of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua is part and parcel of another argument. In the Talmud Tractic of Sanhedrin, Rabbi Eliezer is of the opinion that, and let me quote, if the Jewish people will do teshuva, re repentance, returning, they will be redeemed. And if not, they won't be redeemed. Okay, thus according to Rabbi Eliezer, the final redemption must be brought about through the arousal from below. And thus it reasons that Rabbi Eliezer is of the opinion that the final redemption will be in Tishrei, the preciousness of effort. Rabbi Yeshua disagrees with Rabbi Eliezer, and he says, and quotes, not with money, nor with teshuva emasim tovim. Thus he states that even if the Jewish people do not do teshuva, they will be redeemed. The final redemption, according to Rabbi Yeshua, is an act of God's grace and not of our effort. Therefore, Rabbi Yeshua is of the opinion that just as the exodus of Egypt, which was an act of kindness from God and not earned by our effort, happened in Nisan, so too the final redemption, which is an act of God's kindness and not earned by human effort, will happen in Nisan. Now, even though the Talmud quotes both opinions. However, the Midrash, which we quoted in the opening of the lecture, simply states that the final redemption will happen in the month of Nisan. Thus, we see this as the concluding opinion. This leads us to one last exploration. When in the book of Genesis, when the Torah enumerates the children of Jacob, it does so by telling us the sons of each of Jacob's wives. Rachel, Leah, Bila, and Zilpah. However, when the verse enumerates Jacob's daughter, it says Dina, the daughter of Jacob, rather than the daughter of Leah. Rashi explains this by quoting the Talmud's ruling which states, If the man first emits seed, the child will be a girl. If the woman first emits seed, the child will be a boy. 
I will just explain the mystical meaning behind this. The man refers to God, and the woman refers to us. If the man first emits seed means that the initial arousal came from above, and not by the effort of us below, then the child will be a girl. However, if the initial arousal comes from the woman, from our effort here below, if the woman first emits seed, then the child will be a boy. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, the concept here of a son and a daughter is defined by the female being the presentation of reproduction, and thus the present experience is not final, as there will be more experiences of exile and redemption to follow, reproduction. The male here represents finality. This is why all the songs of redemption are used in the feminine te tense of Shirah. While only concerning the song of the final redemption do we use the masculine tense of Shir. Shirah, feminine, Shir. So it's masculine. So too, the experience of redemption is expressed in the feminine tense of light. As we say in the Purim story, La Yehudim Hota Ora. Ora is the feminine tense of light. While concerning the final redemption, we say or chadash, or masculine. Let us understand this. For an experience to have permanency, the experience must be internalized, digested, and become the very definition of the person. This happens only when the arousal comes from below, and the person works and digests from within himself, transforming internally who he is. Thus, if the woman first emits seed, then the child will be a boy, for the transformation came from below and is a permanent transformation. However, when experience is brought about from above and simply overwhelms the human, then there is no permanency, for it was not digested and internalized. Thus, if the man first emits seed, the child will be a girl, not permanent, sign of reproduction, there's more to come. This leads us, leaves us, I'm sorry, this leaves us with a question. We just explained that we conclude with Rabbi Yeshua's opinion that the final redemption be in Nisan because it does not come from the human effort below. However, in order that the redemption be final, we would want it to specifically come from below and thus happen in Tishrei. We want it to be that the woman first emits seed, the arousal from below, so that it will be a real transformation, internalized and permanent. Why then? Are we saying that we follow Rabbi Yeshua's opinion that the final redemption will be in Nisan, which would be if the man first emits seed, the man being God? The answer is found in the verse. And to Zion it will be said, man after man was born in her, and he, God, he will establish it on high. Wow. The mystical emphasis of this verse being that Man, God, arousal from above, will bore a man, male, permanency, in her, us, his wife. This is because the final redemption will come from, let's look at the last words of that verse, and he, God, will establish it on high. What this means is that there is an unsolicited from above which is not as powerful, nor does it create permanency, as the from above that is first initiated from below, the precious service of mankind. So we have the unsolicited from above, A. Then we have the solicited from above, B, which is stronger 
than the first from above, because it has the precious service of mankind. However, besides the weaker unsolicited from above, and the stronger solicited from, from above, there is then the third and ultimate from above, which is, and he will establish it on high. Hmm, let's see. The third from above is beyond any reach from below. However, the third from above established by God on high does not happen before the second from above, which is initiated only by our effort from below. Thus the third from above has both virtues of A being precious and B being perfect. Let's see. It is precious because the third from above does not happen until after the second from above, which is initiated by the precious effort from below. However, it is perfect because it is established on high, above and beyond, there where no human effort can reach. In closing, what do we learn here in how to consummate our precious effort and our perfect faith. How do we consummate these two together? Simply speaking, we need to know when to leave go of having tight control over our effort. Yes, we need to put in strong effort into all that we do and not be reckless in hiding behind a false faith of laziness or fear. However, we must not clench our effort with such a tight grip of control for this keeps the product of our effort in the constraints of our finite limitations and capacity. We must let go of controlling the product of our effort so that God can fill it with infinite perfection. We must do our due diligence, work hard, and maintain persistence. However, we need to relinquish our control which suffocates our efforts. This is where effort and faith transform from being mutually exclusive to becoming mutually inclusive. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. Here at the Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.